You're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic. Jerry 
Forgive me and help me get myself straight, those sounds. Between moments of silence, I could see bright light and the movement of some kind of ritual. They were all wearing those strange hoods over their heads again. I could smell the smell of those embers as strong as I stand here today. Flaming, shining, bright. I've never been so frightened before or since. Mama told me to hide. Those voices of those loud men getting ever more ferocious, it seemed. And sometime later, Mama dashed in and told me to run, to run towards our heavenly place. That was code for our favorite giant poplar tree, not far from where Imogene's white play cousin would call the wicked side of town. It was so big and majestic. Mama used to say it could touch the stars beyond even the devilish of moons. So I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran until I, I couldn't run no more. I am a child of the wind, even daddy said so. We used to race and I would always win. He'd say, run baby, run, run like the wind. That's it, the wind. Memory is the most unusual thing, Saturday. Well, dearie, I'm just living. No excitement nor entertainment. May God's blessings be with us through the night. All's well that ends well, so I've heard. I wish I could feel myself again. I am a child of the wind, even daddy said so. We used to race and I would always win. And he'd say, run, baby, run. Run like the wind that's in the wind. Memory is the most unusual thing. when you thought it was safe to tune back into the tonic outcomes the free jazz and i don't know if you caught it in there but how much free jazz actually features the juice harp not enough is the correct answer of course that was two pieces there from matana roberts's latest album coin coin chapter four memphis 
You heard Her Mighty Waters Run, an arrangement of the spiritual Roll the Old Chariot Along, and All Things Beautiful. And Matana Roberts is an American composer, improviser, jazz saxophonist, clarinetist, and visual artist based in New York. And Coin Coin, so far up to chapter four, is set to be her magnum opus. It's going to be an epic 12 album work exploring themes of African-American history, memory, and ancestry through time and place. Memphis for the latest chapter, Louisiana, Mississippi, and the Confederate States in the previous ones. Part jazz jam, part oral narrative, the albums weave improvisation and composition along with abstract sonic textures, snatches of rock, hymns, and folk music into what is an evocative and heady brew. Okay, perhaps a slightly redundant caveat. I think you do have to be comfortable with free jazz to get into them, but if so, they also offer so much more. Not that 12 albums of purely free jazz wouldn't be sufficient, of course. Matana Roberts describes her approach to the project as panoramic sound quilting and says the American tradition of quilting often took a lot of disparate, non-related parts and patched them together into a thing of great beauty and comfort. This is what I am trying to do in sculpting my own language, to quilt with all these different sounds and textures, patched together in a way that brings me great joy as an American craftsperson. Narratively, the albums are abstract rather than specific, full of impressions that don't necessarily come in linear sequence or from just one voice, and in this sense they have a dreamlike quality to them that reminds me of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, and specifically John Cage's own take on that book, Roratorio, which I strongly urge you to listen to, if pretty much like everyone, you can't quite handle reading the book. Well, I didn't make it very far anyhow. And here's a mission statement. Matana Roberts has said, At my artistic core, I am firmly dedicated to creating a unique and personal body of sound that speaks to and reminds people of all walks of life to reach, stand up, give voice, regardless of difference. In my ideal world, the idea of difference is an illusion designed only for modern economic division and elitist intellectual hierarchy. Through my life's work, I stand creatively in defiance. That was performed by Matana Roberts on alto sax and voice with Nicholas Kaloya, double bass and voice, Ryan Sawyer, drums, vibraphone, Juice harp, applause please, bells and voice, Hannah Marcus, guitars, fiddle, accordion, voice, Sam Shalabi, electric guitar, oud, voice, Steve Swell, trombone and voice, Ryan White, vibraphone, and Ian Havsky, Jessica Moss, Nadia Moss, and Thierry Amar, also on voices. And as mentioned, the album is Coin Coin Chapter 4, Memphis, and that was put out on Constellation last year.
just such gorgeous harmonies in those chorale sections to a text by Adelaide Simon. That's Hale Smith's Toussaint L'Overture, 1803, written in 1979. And no, that's not an effectively pretentious French title. It is in fact the name of a Haitian general, of whom more in a minute. Hale Smith, meanwhile, who died about 10 years ago, was an American composer, pianist, arranger, editor, and teacher. He was a pianist with an interest in both classical and jazz, before going on to study composition at college and to develop a broad-ranging style, synthesizing genres including jazz, 12-tone serialism, and African-American spirituals. And he also arranged music for and influenced a lot of key figures of American music, from Dizzy Gillespie and Chico Hamilton, through to Isaac Hayes, Ahmad Jamal, Eric Dolphy, and Quincy Jones. Perhaps with facts like this in mind, he somewhat wryly described himself as one of America's most famous unknown composers. He was an advisor for the Center for Black Music Research in Chicago, and while he was routinely listed among the leading black composers of his day, he apparently took exception to that designation. Specifically, he wanted his work and that of his black peers to appear on programs with that of Beethoven, Mozart, Copland, and so forth, based on their inherent merit. We don't even have to be called black, he wrote in an article in 1971. When we stand for our bows, that fact will become clear when it should, after the music has made its impact. Now this piece, Toussaint L'Overture, 1803, as mentioned, is a monument to the great Haitian general and former slave of the same name, and his is a very interesting story. He's probably the best-known leader of the Haitian Revolution, the successful insurrection led by former slaves against colonial French rule in the late 18th century. He first fought for the Spanish against the French, then for France against Spain and Great Britain, and finally he fought on behalf of Saint-Domingue in the era of Napoleonic France. And as a leader of the growing resistance, his military and political acumen was key in transforming the slave insurgency into a revolutionary movement. In 1802, he was invited to Parley by the French divisional general Jean-Baptiste Brunet, but he was instead arrested under false pretenses. Then deported to France and jailed, he died there of pneumonia in 1803. And though this happened before the final and most violent stage of the armed conflict, his achievements set the ground for the Black Army's absolute victory. Suffering massive losses in multiple historic battles at the hands of the Haitian army and losing many men of their forces to yellow fever, the French eventually capitulated and withdrew permanently from Saint-Domingue that very year. The revolution then continued under L'Overture's lieutenant Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who declared independence on 1st of January 1804, thereby establishing the sovereign state of Haiti. Well, there's a little bit of history there for you. The piece was performed by the Alexandria Choral Society, conducted by Kerry Krebel, and taken from the album Music of Hale Smith, which was released on New World in 2007. Thank you. 
raw energy there of Big Talk, written in 2016 by Shelley Washington. She's an American composer, saxophonist, flautist, clarinetist, and vocalist based, I believe, in New York. And when I first heard that piece, it reminded me a lot of the style of Louis Andreessen and composers who've been influenced by him. And his early pieces often carried a progressive political message, which was to an extent inseparable from the means and organization of their delivery. The energy they conveyed was itself an enactment of the work needed for what would have then been called revolutionary change. And I found out that this piece serves perhaps a similar function contained both within and beyond the notes. And for Shelley Washington, that's a very specific one. It is, as she writes, a personal response to the prevalence of rape culture that can be observed in catcalling and sexual harassment that female identifying persons experience and endure on a daily basis. She continues, This unrelenting, churning duo is written to be somewhat of an endurance piece that incorporates all aspects of the body, the muscular ability to play the piece, the wind to power the horn, the focus to see it through. I carefully considered the everyday endurance of a constant barrage of physical and verbal abuse, how we as women bear the brunt of the cultural burden, how we are expected to silently maintain physical and emotional poise, to align with the many social graces, and how sick of it I am, how sick of it we are. The piece, the poetry, and the visual components are all linked to send a very clear and targeted message, stop perpetuating rape culture by any and every means necessary. That was performed by Shelley Washington and Jose Antonio Zayas Caban, both on baritone saxophones, and was released on the label People Places Records in 2018, and you can find it on Shelley Washington's Bandcamp.
from her second album, Dominions, released in 2016. That's Sarah DeVarchi with A Garden, An Orchard. Now, if you follow the likes of Resident Advisor and Pitchfork, you're no doubt already aware of her. You probably knew her stuff way before it was called to. But just in case not, she's a Canadian sound artist and composer of electronic and electroacoustic music, alongside being a pianist. And I think she's currently based in California, where she's pursuing a PhD in musicology at UCLA. Her music combines analog synthesizers with processed acoustic instruments. And on this album, something called the Orchestron, a sampling instrument from the 1970s that plays from a library of sounds that are stored as an optical recording. She's often described as a drone artist, though I think her approach is often a bit more melodic and warmer than that of some other practitioners in that genre, making her reach perhaps a bit wider. She's been influenced by Eliane Rodigue in this sense, and I think her music also owes something to the ethos and sound world of Terry Riley. And that piece in particular reminds me of his music. It's got that warm, lustrous quality and the sense of something slightly mystical. The whole album is worth checking out, along with her subsequent releases. It was put out on Jazz Records in 2016. Now, speaking of jazz. Thank you. 
Now, if I'd been asked blindfold where that music originated from, I'd almost certainly say the US. It's gospel, it's country, it's jazz rolled into one. If you ask me who, I might say mid-70s Keith Jarrett in one of his flights of improvisational fancy. But in reality, that music was fully composed, modelled after European Baroque dance movements, and was written by perhaps the best-known composer of recent years to come from, well, Ukraine, of course. That's three movements from Nikolai Kapustin's Suite in the Old Style, written in 1977. And if it seems at best like a bit of a non-sequitur to be playing composed jazz by a white European in an episode of this show otherwise focusing on African-American artists, I can only plead that I just wanted to include Kapustin this time round as he died a few weeks back. A lot of composers have of course flirted with jazz over the years, and the marriage is often a little bit contrived compared to the real thing. But jazz really is at the core of Capistin's music, and for me there is probably no composer, quote unquote, including the likes of Gershwin and so on, who is more fully steeped in the language and idioms of jazz, who just knows the stylistic ticks and minutiae inside out. His music can perhaps lack psychological depth, for want of a better way of putting it, but it's technically never anything less than immaculate, and often pretty dazzling, as in the many extremely virtuosic piano works he composed, all of which I think have been performed and recorded by the composer himself, usually at breakneck tempi. For me though, the best pieces are less the pseudo-classical concert hall showpieces, and rather those that cleave most closely to purely quote-unquote jazz piano. And I do like this quote of his, I was never a jazz musician, I never tried to be a real jazz pianist, but I had to do it because of the composing. I'm not interested in improvisation. And what is a jazz musician without improvisation? All my improvisations are written, of course, and they became much better. It improved them. Which makes me smile, at least. I mean, if only jazz musicians would just stop making stuff up, right? That was performed by Marc-Andre Hamelin on piano and taken from the album Nikolai Kapustin Piano Music, released on Hyperion in 1997.
the rather beautiful aria from Bodana Froilak's Partita Meditation, written in 2007. She's Ukrainian, a graduate of the Lviv Music School and later the Lviv Conservatory in Western Ukraine, where she was before going on to study contemporary music and jazz at the Academy of Music in Krakow. And alongside her work as a composer, she now works as a university lecturer. This for once is going to be a mercifully short vocal segment, because much more than that, I'm afraid I do not know. Nor do I know about the genesis of this piece, the Partita Meditation, except that it is perhaps modelled on the Baroque form popularised by J.S. Bach, and that it just has a rather lovely, plaintive quality to it. It was performed by the innovation duo Anna and Jacob Zilak-Savsky on violins and released on their SoundCloud in 2016.
Thank <laughs> you. 
there's something just slightly chilling in that that's sometimes written in 1976 by Ollie Wilson. He also recently passed away, I think it was in 2018. He was a very prolific composer, pianist, double bassist, a lecturer at UC Berkeley amongst other places, and musicologist. At Berkeley he was involved with affirmative action in the 70s and 80s whilst helping to diversify the music curriculum. And he's also known for establishing the Tamara or Technology in Music and Related Arts program at Oberlin Conservatory, which was apparently the first ever conservatory program in electronic music. I think it's fair to say that he's one of the most prominent composers of African-American descent in the 20th century, though that of causes of qualification which reveals all too much, making me question just why the African-American composers featured in this and previous shows were and are not better known. Anyhow, Ollie Wilson's stylistic range includes not only instrumental classical music, but also electroacoustics, jazz, and the music of West Africa. Of the latter, he said, because I studied African-American music doesn't necessarily mean that I consciously draw upon that, but I think the pleasure and the understanding that gives me does reflect positively on what I do as a creative artist. And in that piece, sometimes, He uses the call and response tradition of the gospel church to create a dialogue between a tenor singing the spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, and a tape that includes a distorted recording of the same melody. The piece is dedicated to Ollie Wilson's parents, who, he has said, through love and patience, taught me how to sing. As mentioned, that was performed by William Brown, tenor, along with Ollie Wilson on electronics and was released on the album Blank, Smith, Wilson, Other Voices, on the label Composers Recordings in 1977.
just really beautiful and so delicately handled. That's Dorothy Rudd Moore's three pieces for violin and piano written in 1967. She's a composer, pianist, clarinetist and teacher from Newcastle, Delaware. A graduate of Howard University, she then won a scholarship to study in France with the pedagogical legend that is Nadia Boulanger. I played a piece by her sister Lily a while back, but I should really talk about Nadia Boulanger at some point as well. Anyhow, Dorothy Rudmore taught at the Harlem School of the Arts, New York University and the Bronx Community College, and she was one of the co-founders there of the Society of Black Composers. She's encountered frequent professional racism in her career. For example, she and her husband were almost prevented from performing at the 1969 Damrosh Memorial Concert because administrators fretted over having, quote, not just one, but two Negroes on the program. Despite such injustices, she maintained a fruitful career, balancing both writing and teaching, and she's been the recipient of numerous awards, such as the Lucy Moton Fellowship, and the three pieces of violin and piano, vignette, episode, and caprice. Well, as mentioned, they just have a lovely economy of means to them, and for me a great balance between consonant and dissonant harmonies. They were performed by the Walker duo, Gregory Walker Violin, and Helen Walker Hill on piano, and that was released on the album Kaleidoscope, Music by African American Women, on the label Leonardo in 1999. Oh, 
Well, it's not often I go in for classical vibrato-based singing, but that's the second piece I featured in this show alone. So maybe I'm growing up or something, or just getting old. That's Valentin Silvestrov's Le Belle Dame Sans Merci, to the words of the poem by John Keats, taken from his cycle Silent Songs, written between 1974 and 1977. And that Keats poem, a tale of chivalric love unrequited is shot through with not a fair degree of pathos at the ending of things. Valentin Silvestrov is the third composer in this show from Ukraine. He's one of Arvo Pert's favourite composers as well, and it's perhaps not hard to tell why, with his sensibility for sparse, melody-driven textures that have this almost timeless air to them, balancing as they do neoclassicism and a certain romantic lyricism 
with its echoes in this cycle, I think, of Mahler in particular. Stylistically, things weren't always like that, though. He initially wrote modernist pieces, but around the mid-70s, under pressure to conform to official precepts of socialist realism, and also to apologize for his walkout from a composer's meeting to protest the Soviet invasion of then Czechoslovakia, he withdrew from the spotlight and started to reject his previous style. Instead, he composed the cycle of silent songs, 24 in all, with texts drawn from poets including Keats, Pushkin and Shelley, and he also began to compose spiritual and religious works influenced by Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox liturgical music. And I think there's an irony in the fact that by the late 70s, when things were freeing up socially and politically, and many Eastern Bloc composers were looking outward and exploring previously prohibited stylistic innovations, that Silvestrov himself was deliberately returning to the music of the past and to the private sphere of these whispered songs. He has said of them, Music is still song, even if one cannot literally sing it. It is not a philosophy, not a worldview. It is above all a chant, a song the world sings about itself. It is the musical testimony to life. That was performed by Alexei Martinov, baritone, and Alexei Lubimov, piano, and released on the album Silent Songs on the label Megadisc Classics back in 2001. Okay, so something tenuously autobiographical to finish up with today. This is Carly Malone.
I like that a lot. I was introduced to that EP last week whilst away in the woods and I have to say it was one of those magic moments where music and place just seem to come together. Okay, bragging aside, that's Carly Malone with Locus of Repetition, Glory Canon 3 and Fifth Worship from the album Organ Dirges 2016-17. to And who doesn't love a good dirge, right? She's an American artist who's been based in Stockholm since 2012 and closely involved with the music scene there via venues such as Filkingen and the Electronic Music Studio, Electron Music Studio on M's, where I've been fortunate enough to work myself a few times. And anyone who knows me has probably heard me drone on about the Swedish model of arts patronage and development and what a world away it is from the competitive and at least always partially market-driven arts scenes of many other Western countries. And without digressing too much, in Sweden the arts are widely socially valued, properly funded at state level, and inherent trust is always placed in the artists it supports to develop long-term work free of concern for market and extra artistic or outreach value. Anyhow, Carly Malone has been based there and building a reputation as a composer, coder, working mainly, I think, with Super Collider and organist. She apprenticed in pipe organ tuning at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm. And this EP takes room recordings of the Caliph pipe organ that can be found there. There's a somber serenity to the pieces here. They have a very satisfying procedural quality and there's a very particular intimate ambience in terms of the room recording that really gives them their character. We can hear every little detail going on, both with the instrument and in terms of the space. And as with a few other pieces that I've recently played here, this EP highlights a reimagined interior quality to the organ that belies its size and history as an expression of the church. Highly recommended, really, along with all of Carly Malone's other work. Performed by herself on the organ, as mentioned, the album is Organ Dirges, 2016 to 17 and that was released on ascetic house in 2018 right that's it for another one thanks to rosie mimi and everyone at threads the tonic will be back on the 30th of september i believe at 10 a.m british summertime gmt plus one i'm luke fraser thanks for listening <laughs>